This morning, we begin a very brief three-sermon series on the worship of the church, the worship of God. I had an opportunity, oh, almost a year ago now, probably more than a year ago, to lead a, an extended class, adult Sunday school class, on uh, the doctrine or topic of worship. Uh, I've taken some of those uh, uh, insights and, and brought them into uh, the sermon series. And so this morning, we're going to focus our attention on Hebrews chapter 12, the second half of that chapter, beginning at verse 18. As you turn there, I want to just give a brief uh, introduction uh, to the series and what kinds of things we're going to be uh, discussing or looking at in God's Word. I'm sure many of you have noticed uh, that in recent decades, a significant amount of disagreement has come up in the modern church um, over how God should be worshiped. What should a worship service look like? What should be included? What should not be included in a worship service? And what's worship all about anyway? What actually takes place when we come together on Sunday morning and Sunday evening uh, to worship? It's certainly true that the worship practices in the modern church, even if we limit ourselves to American Protestant churches, worship practices in the modern church are wildly different wildly different. You could go to a small town in the Midwest, and on one corner you have a church with a, a formal, a repetitive order of worship that they follow every week, a church where the preaching of the gospel is at the forefront of their worship, and, and just down the block on the other corner you have a, a self-proclaimed church that spends nearly uh, next to no time preaching the Word of God and has no apparent order of worship at all. At best estimate today, there are probably more than 200 Protestant denominations or denominational categories just within the United States, and each one of them have a very distinctive order of worship, a distinctive worship practice. And, and amidst this bewildering array of worship practices, we might be tempted to think that all of these are, are equally valid options, none of them better or worse than the next. You might be tempted to think that the, the landscape of Protestant worship is just a delightful smorgasbord, a, a veritable golden corral of liturgical treats. And the only real dilemma that we face, it is thought, comes in finding a worship style that meets my preferences and my needs. And I must say that, unfortunately, that is a mindset that has crept into our own Reformed orbit. We uh, often watch as our, our children are raised in the, in the covenant context of a Reformed church, and then it doesn't take long before gradually through various influences, maybe it's college life, uh, maybe it's the spouse they have found, they grow into little children, jumping up and down to look over the fence, as it were, curious what's on the other side. What lies on the other side? Eager to try something new or different, no matter how, how worthy. Wondering whether they should simply stay in their quote-unquote parents' church. Not quite sure whether it's really their church not quite sure if it's the worship style 
that best suits them anymore. Does that sound familiar? Raises a very important question. A very important question. Should our worship be shaped and guided by personal preference, by by cultural fads, or is the Bible sufficiently clear to give us principles, to give us guidelines for worshiping in a way that God truly delights in? Well, that's the key question that we're going to be looking at together as we go through God's Word in this sermon series. And I I hope that as we study God's Word together, all of us will gain a better understanding of, a greater appreciation for, biblical Reformed worship, and also learn together to take joy, to take delight, to be in awe of worshiping God as He desires to be worshiped. Well, today, this morning, we're going to focus our attention on Hebrews 12 and a particular question, and that is, what happens in worship? What happens? What transpires? What occurs here? After God's Word calls us to worship, after the minister raises his hands and extends the Lord's greeting, what happens? What's taking place here? Now, all of us have some idea of what's going on. We might say, well, in worship, we, we work through a familiar order of worship. We get from one end of the order of worship to the end of the order of worship, and we can check that box. We're done. Some might say, well, worship is about gathering with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Some might say it's about singing songs. Others might say it's about hearing about our sin, hearing the law, then hearing the, the comfort of the gospel. Others might admit, worship to me is struggling to stay awake during another long sermon. Each of us have some idea of what happens, what transpires when we come and worship God on Sunday morning and Sunday evening. But what I submit to you this morning is this, that sometimes we are so focused on the order and the structure of the worship services, getting, getting through it right, that we lose sight of. We become ignorant of the spiritual realities that are occurring all around us during worship. Our our minds are so often too earthbound that we don't sufficiently understand, we don't, don't bask in the wonder of what is actually taking place when we worship together on the Lord's Day. And so before I read Hebrews 12, I want to ask the boys and girls a question this morning. What would you think, boys and girls, if some Sunday morning as you're sitting at the breakfast table eating your cereal, and mom and dad came in and said, quick, kids, finish your cereal, get dressed, comb your hair, brush your teeth, because we get to go to heaven this morning. We get to go to heaven this morning. I wonder what you would say. What happens when we come to worship? The writer to the Hebrews tells us we get to go to heaven. Would you look with me at Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 18? The writer says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. 
for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Here we end the reading of God's holy word this morning. Well, you may have noticed as we read this passage, as we looked over this passage together, that there's a great deal of biblical imagery that might at first confuse us, might leave us wondering what the writer is really talking about, but to boil it down, to make it very simple, the writer to the Hebrews is explaining the difference between old covenant worship and new covenant worship. He's explaining the difference between old and new covenant worship. And the writer makes the comparison between these two kinds of worship by contrasting two ancient mountains. We have Mount Sinai on one hand and Mount Zion on the other. Now, boys and girls, I know you are familiar with Mount Sinai. You've studied about Mount Sinai in Sunday school, I'm sure. You remember that in Exodus 19 and 20, God came and He met with His people, the people of Israel, at the base, at the foot of Mount Sinai. It was there at Mount Sinai that that God delivered His holy law through Moses to the people. Now, Mount Zion might be less known, but we certainly sing about Mount Zion quite a bit in the Psalms. Mount Zion was a mountain that was located much further north. Uh, It was the location where righteous King David uh, built his royal palace. We read about that in 2 Samuel 5. Something else was built on one of the hills of Mount Zion, and that was the temple. Sometimes Zion would be used as a name to describe Jerusalem as a whole, the dwelling place of God's holy king, the Lord's dwelling place. Uh, Every year, all of Israel was gathered and called to go up to Zion to worship the Lord and celebrate the feast, because that's where God made His earthly dwelling with His people in Zion. It's not surprising that the Old Testament prophets, when they talked about the deliverer of Israel that was coming, the Messiah who would rescue His people from sin, where did He come from? From Zion, God's dwelling place. 
Well, both of these mountains, Sinai and Zion, they still exist. You can go visit them if you go to Israel today. But it's important for us to notice that the writer to the Hebrews is not thinking about these mountains here so much as earthly locations that you could go visit. That's not so much his point. These mountains are symbolic of a deeper spiritual reality. The writer is thinking of them more symbolically as what we might call scenes of divine revelation. And they illustrate for us the difference between the old covenant worship of Israel and the new covenant worship that we experience here every Lord's Day. Well, how, first of all, did God reveal Himself? How did He reveal His righteousness and His holy character at Mount Sinai? Look at the description we have here, verses 18 through 21. And notice what the writer says. He says to the Christian church, you have not come to Mount Sinai. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. What do we notice about uh, the encounter of God's people with God at Sinai? His revelation was sensual. It was visual. It was audible, even tangible. The mountain could be touched The wind could be felt swirling around the people as they gathered at the base of Mount Sinai. Uh, The trumpet and the voices could be heard. The blazing fire could be smelt. The gloomy darkness could be seen. But it was all extremely terrifying. It was extremely terrifying for the people of Israel. Mount Sinai was a menacing, threatening holy ground. There was a threat that even if a a mere animal touched uh, the base of the mountain, it would have to be put to death. In fact, it was all so unbearable, uh, we read, that that the people uh, wished that God's voice would turn silent. They could not bear to hear it anymore. Even Moses, the mediator appointed by God to be the go-between between him and his people, even he says, I tremble with fear. It was a frightening situation to meet with the holy God. We notice something about this portrayal of Israel's worship. The encounter of our holy God with His sinful people at Sinai was an encounter signified, characterized by distance. Distance. A barrier had to be created so that unholy sinners would not be consumed by a perfectly righteous and holy God. And we see that that's a key feature of old covenant worship, distance from God on account of sin, a terror, a holy terror of the awesome holiness of God. We see that portrayed in the temple and its worship and its ongoing sacrifices for sin that never ended but had to be repeated day after day multiple times because they never put away sin. 
We see it portrayed in the worship of the temple and that there were areas in which God's people could not go, the holy of holies and the holiest of holies, that they could not go because of sin. But in contrast, look at the glorious reality of our worship, new covenant worship. Look what we read here in verses 22 to 24. Again, the writer has said, you have not come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And you have come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We have an altogether unique experience as we come to worship because we have received by faith the completed, the finished, the better work of Jesus Christ by faith, and so we have come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. We've come to Zion, which is the heavenly dwelling place of God, the city of the living God, where the saints and the angels dwell with Him in supreme, unending glory. And the coming that the writer talks about here is coming to God in worship, individually to be sure, but corporately, as the covenant body of Christ, we come and we meet with the saints and the angels, with Jesus Christ, with God Himself, when we worship. And what a remarkably different world that we come to. Rather than experiencing the fear and the the sense of distance from God that was experienced uh, by the people of Israel as it gathered at the base of Mount Sinai, we have come to a festal gathering at Mount Zion. We are able to enter boldly into His presence to worship the the risen Christ, because we come through Jesus, our mediator of a better covenant. When we come to worship, we enter heaven. We enter the city of the living God. We enter the festival of the angels. We join in with the assembly of the saints, the firstborn, the spirits who have been made perfect, clothed in the righteousness, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. We come to God, the judge of all, but we are not consumed because we come to Jesus, who is the mediator of a better covenant, whose blood spells out forgiven, cleansed, washed of all your sin. We come to Jesus whose death has utterly exhausted the wrath of God against us who has cleansed us from an impure conscience so that we can sing His praises freely and without fear. At Sinai, God came down to the people and all of His holiness and all of His heavenly glory, and so they were afraid. But when we worship... What does God do? He lifts us up. When we come to worship, He lifts us up by His Holy Spirit through faith, 
so that we actually join in what is taking place right now perpetually in the heavenly city. You know what that means? That means that our worship here on Sunday morning and Sunday evening and the worship of heaven, they're of the same kind. They're of the same kind. That's what really goes on in Christian worship. That's what really takes place. And so the real question that remains for us is, do we believe that? Do we believe that? Or do we doubt? Now you may say, well, Pastor Tim, that's pretty hard to grasp. That's hard. And I agree. As earthbound individuals, that is a hard reality to grasp and to understand. We come to worship here on earth and we face distractions of many kinds. Sometimes we struggle with poor motivation to come and to worship. We come to worship and we are burdened by the cares and the trials and the the disappointments of life. Maybe we come and we don't know the songs very well and we feel that we can't participate the way we'd like to. Maybe the sermon is altogether uninteresting. I'm reminded of 2 Kings 6, an episode in the ministry of Elisha where the Syrians, the enemies of Israel, had surrounded the city and Elisha's servant thought that all was lost And then the Lord took the scales off of his eyes and helped him see that the army of heaven, the horses and the chariots of fire, had surrounded the city of God's people and were protecting them even though at first he could not see the chariots. Well, in a similar way, we need to learn that the inhabitants of heaven truly surround us in our worship, even though as of now we do not see them with our eyes. It's true, we cannot touch heaven's mountain now, but the reality is that when we proceed into worship, we are truly scaling the heights of Zion, and we've entered the city of God's inhabitants. It's true, as of now, we cannot see the angels. We do not yet behold the the, the human face of Jesus. We cannot yet hug our loved ones and our ancestors in the faith. We don't yet have the resurrection knees that we need to bow down before the throne of God. That's true. But we need to see beyond our eyes to the reality that the Lord the cloud of witnesses, the angelic hosts, they are all present with us. That's the glorious truth for all who have the eyes to see it. And so worship requires faith. As we read a a chapter earlier in Hebrews, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction, the certainty of things not yet seen. And so, brothers and sisters, faith and Scripture convince us that we are nowhere else but in the realm of heaven as we worship. And that reality ought to encourage us to breathe deeply, that we might grow nearer to God. 
What happens in worship? Christian worship ushers us into the very heavenly presence of God. We get to go to heaven on Sunday morning and Sunday evening. Well, since that's true, now what? How does that reality change us? How does that reality shape our worship? I want to conclude with just three practical insights on how this spiritual reality changes and ought to change the way we worship, the way we view worship. And the first is this. If when we worship, we get to go to heaven, we ought to delight in worship a lot more. We should delight in worship a lot more. If we really believe that when we worship, we go to be with God and His Son and the angelic hosts and the saints by the Holy Spirit, then we will make worship a greater priority for ourselves and for our families. We will not let lesser things and flimsy excuses and minor inconveniences keep us from experiencing this abundant heavenly feast whenever the elders call us to worship. I wonder, brothers and sisters in the Lord, can you imagine? Can you fathom an earthly experience? more awe-inspiring and blessed than entering the heavenly courts of God? That's what we have here. That's what we enjoy. And I agree that the Lord's day is for family. It's for rest. It's for some of those things that we don't get to in the other parts of the week. These things are good. These things are great. But they cannot compare to the glories of heavenly worship. And none of these things, good as they are, should come at the expense of worshiping God as the elders have called us to worship. You see, if we understand that what we are doing here is worshiping God in heaven, that we need to learn to love. We need to learn to prioritize worship more. We need to prioritize it now because that's what we were created for. Worship will be our eternal destiny. Do we love it now? We need to delight in worship more. But secondly, if we go to heaven when we worship God and Christ, well, then we will also worship in reverence and in awe. You notice what else uh, the writer of the Hebrews says here. Most of our focus is on these first number of verses, but notice how he concludes here. Verse 28, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It's true, the wonderful news here in this passage is that we no longer come to Mount Sinai, that that frightening place, but the God of Sinai is still the God who we worship. 
The God whom we worship is still a consuming fire. It does not say that He was a consuming fire or that later on the day of judgment He will be a consuming fire. He is a consuming fire. He's the God of holiness and justice and righteousness, and He has revealed His will for worship to us in His Word. His holy character remains unchanged in the new covenant. He's still the God who is jealous for His glory. And so we dare not worship glibly. We dare not worship casually. We dare not worship out of mere tradition, mechanically, just because that's what we've always done. We must worship with gratitude and joy in humble submission because of Christ's sacrifice for us, but we must worship with a biblical humility, a submissiveness before the holiness of God. We dare not worship Him in any other way than He's commanded us in His Word. We're going to look at that more fully in the next sermon. But finally, going to heaven in worship awakens us to our future life with God. Our taste of heaven in worship now should, should awaken our desire, should awaken our appetite for the great feast, the great festal celebration that awaits us when Christ returns and the marriage supper of the Lamb begins. Worship now should increase our longing for the day when we will join the glorified ranks of the spirits made righteous, made perfect. And that means that our appetites for the things of this world must decrease, must slip away. The more we delight in, the more we desire this heavenly gift of corporate worship now the more our appetites for the things of this world, the things that are passing away, will decrease. As we sing in that hymn, the things of this earth must grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Do you know where you encounter the glory and the grace of God more than any other place on this earth in corporate worship? What a blessing we have every Lord's Day, twice in fact, to come and gather as the saints, as the redeemed, as those who are covered by the better blood of Jesus Christ, to join with the festal gathering in heaven before the throne of God. Let's not neglect that. Let's not neglect that. Let's learn to cherish that more and more as we look forward to the return of our King in the beginning of that full and great celebration of worship in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are humbled. We are amazed that You would welcome us into Your very presence. And Lord, we must be reminded that, that, that that's not mere Christian lingo. Those aren't mere words. For you tell us that we truly come to your throne. In worship, we truly enter the heavenly city 
by the Holy Spirit, by faith. By your grace, we are connected. We join in with the assembly of the redeemed, those washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, a greater earthly experience simply cannot be imagined. And yet, Lord, we confess that we all too often cannot see this reality. We do not think about this reality. This reality does not change our thinking and our practice when it comes to worship. We are too earthbound and too burdened by the concerns of this life to to take delight as we should in this heavenly gift of corporate worship. Lord, we thank you that you have given us overseers, elders, and you've given them wisdom and that they call us to worship you in the morning and in the evening because it is good for us. It is best for us. It is for our growth as believers. It prepares us for the heavenly worship that we will enjoy for eternity. Lord, help us to be submissive to the elders. Help us to follow their instruction. Help us to love your worship. Help us to humble ourselves before you and to be zealous to partake of this heavenly feast even now here on earth. Father, we thank you for the benefits and the blessings and the joyful experience that we have together to gather as brothers and sisters in the Lord, as those who are redeemed, fully washed, fully assured that we have our sins forgiven for the sake of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. And it is here, most of all, that we enjoy these truths. And so, Lord, help us not to neglect meeting together as the day of your return draws near, for it is good for us to be here and to experience these heavenly riches. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.